All right, so if you could, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. Luke chapter 15, actually verses 11 through 32. We did verses 1 through 10 last time. So Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, the title of the sermon is Lost and Found, part 2. And once you're there, if you're physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, then, then please do. It is a big one, though, so if you're physically able to stand. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and uh, this is Luke telling us what Jesus says. So starting in verse 11, he sa- it says this, He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered the estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes. You slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for giving us this parable. We thank you, God, for showing us your heart for the lost and and how you think about those who are perishing right now and how we should think. And so I pray, Lord, as we come to this text, you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what your word means and and what we're supposed to do with it, Lord, that you would um, get us to repent of any callousness, of of any attitude where we're like the older brother, Lord, but uh, just give us a heart that imitates your heart. Please remove me as much as possible to where your word will go to your people And uh, it just won't get messed up, Lord. 
And uh, we just pray again, Lord, that your people will be edified. We pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, they will hear what you are saying to them through this parable and they will come to you and they will be saved. And God, we pray in everything that you will get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So last time I was up here two weeks ago, I I told you that before I start my next book, because I just finished the book of Romans, so before I go to the next one, I wanted to do a few sermons on something extremely important. And so what I did is I asked us to consider whether or not what brings God joy brings us joy. I asked whether or not what causes God to rejoice causes us to rejoice. And this morning I'm going to continue in that vein. The point of the sermon is the same as the last one because all of chapter 15 of Luke has only one point, right? And so just to get right to it, that that point is this. There is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. There is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. In fact, it causes so much joy in God, joy like as in a noun, it then causes God to do something, rejoice, which is a verb. So the salvation of sinners causes so much joy in God that he rejoices. And the question is, how do we know this? Well, Jesus shows us this truth through three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And really, if we are the children of God, then what causes him joy should cause us joy. And that, what that means then is the salvation of sinners should be one of our greatest desires. And honestly, it should be the object of our greatest efforts. And when it's not, we are not mimicking the heart of the Father. So last time, what we did is we looked at the, the first two parables. We looked at the lost sheep and the lost coin. And just in case you don't know what a parable is, it's a story where Jesus would like take something from common everyday life and use it to, to make a spiritual or theological point. And so he did that with the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Both of these made it clear that God takes immeasurable joy in the salvation of sinners. When sinners repent and receive the salvation that God offers, God rejoices. Now, the reason Jesus is telling these parables is because of what we read in verses 1 and 2. This whole thing started because of what we are told there. So what I want to do is really go back and read verses 1 and 2 real quick to set the context, and then we'll jump to the third parable after this context is is set. And so if you wanted to look in your Bible at verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. It says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so that's the setting. Jesus has been teaching for some time now. He's done remarkable things like miracles. In fact, if you survey the book of Luke before chapter 15, we see that he healed people of diseases. He restored sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. He cast out many demons with just a mere word. And that was on multiple occasions. He even raised a little girl from the dead. So you don't think news like that spreads? Of course it does. It's going to spread throughout the land. But then in addition to those miracles... He has this public teaching ministry where he's going town to town, and when he teaches, it's like nothing people have ever heard before. His ability to pull out the meaning of the Old Testament and to speak with authority about it caught everybody's attention. So the miracles he did, the teaching he did, caught everybody's attention. And so these two things mixed, his teaching and his miracles, would get people to start asking a very important question. Could this guy actually be the one? You might be thinking, the, the, the one, the, the, the one what? The one, the one that God has been promising ever since Genesis 3.15. The one that God has been promising to send since the beginning. The one who's going to make everything right. 
the one that is going to set straight all that is crooked. That one came to be known by the title Messiah. Could this Jesus be the Messiah? No one else had ever done the things he did. No prophet, no priest, no king, no holy man, nobody. And so his teaching and his miracles, it draws a crowd. And what verses 1 and 2 showed us is two polar opposites in terms of kinds of people are showing up and being part of this crowd. You have the worst sinners in society, that's verse 1, and then you have the most outwardly pure religious folks in verse 2. These are the two types of people showing up here. The sinners want to know, what does it mean that the Messiah might be here? Will he institute God's kingdom, and in the process, will he destroy us for being wicked? That's what they're wondering. Or instead, will he receive them and forgive them if they turn away from their sins? Most assuredly, reports would have reached their ears that this man who people think is the Messiah is gentle and lowly, that he doesn't crush a bruised reed. So maybe he's here to bring us hope rather than wrath. And so they're drawing near to here. Now, the religious experts, they're here for a different reason. They're sizing him up. Is he really the Messiah? If he is, then we expect him to meet certain expectations that we've been taught since we were young. Now, some of those expectations were right, but some were not. Some were just the opinions of man. Some of them were teaching in the Pharisee party that the Messiah couldn't even come until you had one full 24-hour period where not a single sin happens anywhere in Israel. The Messiah is so pure, he can't come to this land if there's even one sin in the land. So that would cause some of them to think, well, certainly he can't be here. He's too pure to be in a land if there's even one sin, right? But here's this man. Sure, he's done things we've never seen before. We're not exactly sure how to explain this, but he's letting sinners sit with him at his table, and he's teaching them. How dare he? Doesn't he know how evil these people are? And and to help us understand last week, I explained last time just how bad these people really were. Tax collectors were worst of the worst, and then the people who gathered around them were almost just as bad. And so if you want to go listen to the last sermon to get the review of just how evil these people were and how sinful they were and how guilty they were, you could go check that out on, on sermon audio. Bottom line is these were the worst sinners of society. And yet they hear Jesus is in town and they're seeking him out. They want to hear from him. But as they show up and sit with him, they then hear these people of their society who are supposed to know the most about the Bible right, who are supposed to be the shepherds, they hear those people yelling. They hear them complaining. How can this man welcome these kinds of people? And so it's to that question that Jesus gives three parables. First, the lost sheep. A sheep wanders, one out of a hundred, wanders away. But a good shepherd, which is modeled off God, who's the good shepherd as described in Ezekiel 34, the good shepherd will leave the 99 that are safe to go after that one that wandered off. And then with all love and tenderness, what did we see? He hoists that lost sheep on his shoulders and he'll cuddle walk it all the way home. But he doesn't stop there. When he gets home, he puts on a celebration with his neighbors because his sheep was lost, but now it's found. He loves and values that simple sheep so much. And then, of course, the punchline comes in verse 7, which let us know what it was really about. It's not about sheep. It's about sinners who repent. He said, in the same way, there is more joy in God over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. What good news for these sinners who are in the audience. The Messiah is telling them that God will still have them. They just need to turn away from their sins. They just need to give them up. They need to turn to God's Messiah, Jesus, in faith, and then they'll be forgiven. And what he's telling them is there will be a party in heaven for each one of them that's far grander than any celebration on earth. 
And if that first parable wasn't enough, I mean, I think it was enough to make the point. He's then going to make the same point with the second parable, the lost coin. A woman loses a valuable coin, and so she searches with great intensity and finds it. Just like the shepherd, she then celebrates with her neighbors because she valued that coin greatly. It kind of makes me think of a, of a woman, if she loses her, her wedding ring, she'll go into full panic, just scour the house, and then when she finds it, there will be quite the celebration. I'm like the husband who will just go and try to find a replica real quick. No, she'll, she'll, do, all, she'll do all the work to find that thing. And so, uh, so pretty much she's celebrating. She values this coin. And the punchline comes in verse 10, where again, he says there's joy among God's angels over one sinner that repents. Now, we have to remember his point with these two parables is primarily to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's correcting them. He's, he's saying, look, you guys, you guys assume that God cares nothing for these people. You treat them with such derision. You assume that because of all of their sins, God's done with them. And yes, if they don't repent, they will perish. But you forget that God is the good shepherd, according to Ezekiel 34, who goes after those who stray and goes after those who are lost. You forget that God is the one in Isaiah 1.18 who said, Come reason with me, for even though your sins be like scarlet, I will wash you white as snow. God is the one who says in Ezekiel 33.19 that if a sinner turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live. So Jesus is telling them with these parables, you've assumed wrongly about your God. Yes, he's just, but you've assumed wrongly about how he's thinking about these people right now. God has now sent the shepherd he promised to send, the son of David. He came to seek and save that which is lost. And that's the point of these parables. That's what Jesus is telling them. So on one hand, it's a rebuke to those who think they're righteous and care nothing for those who are wicked. It's a rebuke to those who think they should wash their hands of the wicked and simply sit back and wait for God's judgment to crush them. And then on the other hand, and rather than it just being a rebuke of those people, it's also a promise. It's hope. It's a promise to those who are desperately wicked. It's a promise to those who are still enslaved to their sins. He's saying you still have a chance. God has not washed his hands of you, not yet. Right now, you can repent. You can turn away from your sins. You can surrender your life to Christ, and God will have you. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. He will celebrate your salvation by throwing a party in heaven just for you. That, that's what Jesus is saying. And so he made this point poignantly and powerfully in those first two parables. Well, he wants to make sure there's no way this point gets missed, and so he's going to escalate this point in the third parable. See, in the first one, we had a lost sheep. In the second, we had a lost coin. Now we're going to have a lost man. But even more, we have a lost son. And even more than that, what makes this one even more interesting is we have two sons, one that's lost and one that's still at home. And through the two sons, Jesus has a lot to say to two different kinds of people, right? He's actually talking to two different kinds of people based on these sons. Now, this morning, we're only going to focus on the one son. Okay? If I were to preach this whole parable, because it's a long one, we'd be here two hours. Some of you would be okay with that. The other 80 of you would walk out. So, that being said, we're going to focus on the lost son today, and then we'll focus on the son that was home next time. So this morning, let's, let's look at the, the parable of the lost son. As, as we dive into this, 
It's just worth mentioning that this is one of the most beloved parables in all of history. You probably know that books have been written, paintings and sculptures have been created. I mean, this parable has captured the imagination of Christians for 2,000 years because it's just so good. Uh, But also, just to throw this warning out there, this parable has been greatly misinterpreted. Rather than seeing it in its context as a rebuke to the Pharisees and as hope to tax collectors and sinners, people instead have said, this is all about God rejecting Israel and replacing them with the Gentiles. And honestly, that is nowhere in the text, and it's not even remotely a feature of the surrounding context. That's why I brought us back to verses 1 and 2. You have two kinds of people, and then you have two sons. That lets you know what this is talking about. And remember, the ultimate point of this all is there is immeasurable joy in God over one sinner that repents. So let's get into that. Jesus begins the setting of the story in verse 11. If you look at it, it says this. He also said, a man had two sons. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. Simple enough, a father, two sons, three main characters, right? Now, before going any further, it's probably worth asking just one more time, who's he talking to? Remember, two groups. You've got the religious leaders and you have the sinners. And then in the parable, two sons. So that's a clue that the two sons represent the two groups in his audience. Simple, not rocket science, right? So let's continue. The story takes a horrible turn. In verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now, on first glance, you might not see the problem here. And and the reason for that is people in our society, we approach our parents all the time and ask for money. You know, we'll ask for our inheritance early or whatever, because maybe we got a big investment that that we could use the money for. And no parent would see anything like, like, this is horrible that you're asking me for this. It's not a big deal for us. But it was a huge deal in ancient Israel. Why? Because Numbers chapter 27, verses 8 through 11, makes it clear that the inheritance only passes after the father dies. You cannot get it before the father dies. It's unheard of to ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive. Now, while the father still lives, all the property is his. When he dies, according to Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, two-thirds goes to the firstborn son, and then the remaining third gets divided up equally among the remaining sons. Now, given that this man only had two sons, the older would get the two-thirds, the younger would get the one-third. And it's the younger son here that's making this request. So pretty much he's asking the father to lose one-third of everything he owns while he's still alive. And let's be clear here. A request like this in ancient Israel would be equivalent to saying, Dad, why won't you die already? That's really what he's saying. I've been wanting to get out of here for so long, I've got nothing of my own because it's all technically yours. I hate this place. Quite honestly, I hate you. I hate the rules, these stupid laws of Moses. I hate this culture in Israel. I want to be free, but I got no money of my own. I've waited around for you to die, but you won't. So could you just do me a favor and give me the one third before you die? Just pretend you're dead and give it to me. I mean, that's what he's saying. And in ancient Israel, a request like this was considered like the worst possible sin, or at least in the group of worst possible sins. A sin like this against your parents is a sin against creation itself. And a sin against creation, again, you can see how it goes, it's a sin against God. And so, of course, if anyone does not deserve to ever be forgiven, it's this son. It's this guy, right? And so the question is, what's the father to do? I'm sure the Pharisees would expect him to say, no, son, you're crazy. No, you're not getting the money. 
You're, don't publicly disgrace the family. What's wrong with you? Or maybe they're even thinking, turn this kid over to the judges and just let him be executed because he's gone too far with this. Or maybe a wiser Pharisee might say, well, bargain with him. Say, son, I'll give you a higher allowance. Just, just wait for me to die, man, you know, or whatever. But the one thing they say, the one thing that none of them would think is that the father would give in to the son's demand. But he does. And if you think about it, it's much like the situation with God. God's commandments are clear. His divine nature has been clearly observed in everything he's made. That's what Romans 1 says. It says people are without an excuse, but they want to sin, so God turns them over to their depravity, right? He lets them use the oxygen in their lungs and and their functioning brains to go and do what they want to do. They're choosing their sin. They choose their own prison. Ultimately, they're choosing their own eternal condemnation. And so because that's how the world really is, Jesus in the parable, since the father represents the father, he has the father give the son the inheritance. So the son, hey, he's responsible for what he's going to do. And it's very interesting how he says this, because you can miss this in the English. In the Greek, the son asks for the wealth. He says, I want my wealth. Give me the the one-third of the estate. And then it says the father divvied out his life to them, which sometimes the word is used for livelihood. Right? And so what that's showing is he's given his livelihood to the sons. This lets us know that the young son is so short-sighted. He simply thinks he's asking for money. But in reality, he's asking for the father's very ability to make a living. So it's not just wealth. It is life. It's livelihood. So the scene is definitely set now. And I think one reason Jesus chose this scenario is because he wants the Pharisees to really focus on on someone who has given themselves over to the worst kind of sin. Like the Pharisees would look at this son and say, this guy deserves to die a super painful death. Jesus wants them to see this son in the same way that they're looking at the tax collectors and the sinners. That way at the end of the parable, it makes his point and it makes it powerfully. Before that point to really sink in, Jesus has to let the story get even worse. So look at verse 13. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Now let that sink in. He takes his father's livelihood, at least a third of it, and he goes as far away as he can. He wants nothing to do with his father or his people. Now keep in mind that the setting, the perspective is is Israel. That's the setting of the story. And so the setting is an entire people who are in a land and they're in covenant with the one true God. So the one place you access that true God is in that land. You leave that land, that's like you saying, I don't want to be with that God anymore. Okay, so this guy leaves Israel and it tells us he traveled to a distant country, which in the Bible usually refers to a land so far away from Israel's perspective that is beyond the sea. So the picture Jesus is painting is this guy has gone as far as Rome or even Spain. He's getting as far away from Israel as people knew back then, you know, to to the very edges. Okay, and then once he gets there, once he gets as far away from God and his people as possible, he sows his wild oats. Everything that his father and his father's father and his ancestors had worked for in Israel, at least that one-third, it is now being spent on booze, women, revelry, and just plain wicked irresponsibility. And in his mind, no more law of Moses, no more rules, no more inhibitions. He could get drunk out of his mind. He can indulge in prostitutes. He could buy friends with his lavish spending on wicked things. And you know how it goes, as long as the money's there, the wicked crowds will be there too. 
And he could even deceive himself into thinking this band of sinners is a real family. They don't judge each other. They just have a good time together, right? And that sounds very familiar to our society, doesn't it? But it's a band of sinners. They think they're a family because they indulge and encourage each other in their sins. They think they're just having a good time. But we know how this ends. We know how it ends. Verse 13 ends by saying, he squandered his estate in foolish living. That one third of everything his father's ever worked for, it's now gone. And often what happens is when the money's gone, the friends are gone too. The band of sinners disappears as well. When your way of life can no longer help them in their way of sinful life, they got no use for you. So who you thought was close to you, they're now nowhere to be found. Their love in this case lasted only as long as the booze and the women. Or in other cases, today, their love might only last as long as you agree with them. But until you start saying, you know, I think this is going too far, that's when you see the love wears off and you get canceled. Whereas in contradiction to this, the father's love, unlike these band of sinners, was unconditional. What a fool to make this trade. So he hits the bottom, but he's not at rock bottom. I guess there's a bottom before rock bottom. And where he's at now, he still doesn't want to return. Maybe it's because of shame. Maybe he's thinking, how could I ever face my father after this? How will anyone in Israel ever respect me after this? So he's thinking, no, my lot is cast. I've got to find a way to make a life in this distant country, even though I've run out of money. And we know like wise people will use their wealth to, to make them secure during times of economic trouble. Fools squander their money. So when the trouble comes, they've got no security. And that's what happened to this guy. Look at verse 14. It says this, it says, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. So maybe now he's questioning life's decisions. No money, no food, no friends. The distant country itself is even starting to run out of food. And maybe, just maybe, at this point in the parable, the tax collectors and the sinners are hearing this and they're thinking, you know what, this sounds like my life. I've done so many bad things. I've committed so many sins. I've wronged so many people. There's no Israel for me to return to. I've gone too far with my sin. And maybe some of you have felt like you've reached that point yourself, that you've gone too far. There's no coming back. That's why we're going to keep reading. Cruelest thing I could do is say, all right, let's pray. And then we, we leave. We've got to keep reading. But there's another audience hearing this as well. Maybe they're not hearing it right. Maybe those Pharisees and scribes are thinking, yes, it serves this fool right. He deserves to die for what he did to his father. Now he's broke. Hopefully he'll just go starve to death. Let justice roll down like a river. Probably thinking this guy can't get any more undignified than this. It's best for him just to die. Well, they're wrong. He can get more undignified. He can go lower. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now there are two ways that he goes lower than low here. First, when it says he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, the words went to work is a single word in Greek, and it actually means to unite himself or glue himself to this person. That is a way of saying he sold himself into slavery. He actually made himself part of this person's household, this pagan's family. He has a new father, but he's not a son to that father. He's a slave to that person. So this Israelite renounced his real father in Israel to come be the slave of a pagan father in a faraway land instead. That's the first way he goes lower than low. Second, he did all this in such a way that he actually renounced his Jewish identity. It says he went, quote, into his fields to feed the pigs. For Israelites, God declared pigs to be unclean animals. 
in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 8. Israelites were to have no dealings with pigs back then. So for all practical purposes, he's made himself a Gentile. He's become what Israelites would call a goy, uh, one among the goyim. He's a, he's a Gentile. He has severed himself from Israel. Now, again, I, I picture the tax collectors thinking about this. Sometimes sin so enslaves you that you feel that your only recourse is to dive deeper into it. And the deeper you dive, the more impossible it feels to come back. And so think of these tax collectors. They were disowned by their loved ones for being traitors to their country. So what else can they do? Well, rather than think they could repent and come back, instead they use their position to extort more money from their fellow Israelites, which makes them richer but makes their people hate them more. Well, they need to have a social circle, so now they use that money to befriend prostitutes and drunks. If you notice, in each case, they're diving deeper and deeper into the sin. It's worse. And, and people think, I can't go back, so they go further into the hole. Eventually, they say, they're so far in the hole, they're wondering, is it even possible to come back from this? Will God forgive someone who's gone so far? And then again, I picture the Pharisees thinking, this guy's just too stubborn to die. At least he had a little bit of dignity, but now he's renounced his Israelite identity. He's a Gentile slave. He's still getting what he deserves. Now, starting in verse 16, Jesus is going to begin to tell us what he's thinking and feeling. So far, it's mainly focused on his actions, but we're going to get a window into his thoughts. How does the worst of sinners think and feel at this point in his life? Jesus says this. He says in verse 16, He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So he was longing, desiring to eat the food of animals, the food of swine, pig food. And yet the people of this distant country where he wanted to go, they didn't give a rip about him. They wouldn't even give him pig food. See, he thought that this foreign land without God's Torah or God's law would be better. But now he sees the truth. And you want to know what the truth is? Sin is a liar. Sin is a deceiver. Sin has one goal, to destroy you. And at this point, checkmate, sin has won over this guy. This young man will starve to death if something doesn't change. He is now, at this point, in his lowest point, beyond all regular hope. Now, some people, as we know, I'm sure you've tried to help people before, some people remain in their bondage, right? They, they reach the same point, but they stay there. It doesn't matter that people try to offer them a way out. It doesn't matter to them that God is willing to receive them if they turn away from their sin. Even though their sin has destroyed them, they still love it for some weird reason. They stay with their abuser, and they hate their life. And yet at the same time, they both love and hate their tormentor, and it keeps them in this weird kind of slavery. And maybe, again, that's you. Maybe you have come to that place in your life. Or maybe you're not there yet but you've started a course of life where eventually it will lead you there. Listen carefully. Right now, today, there is still a chance to turn from it. Right now, even at rock bottom, there's a way to come to your senses. And that's exactly what we're going to see with this young man. Look at verse 17. Jesus says this. He says, when he came to his senses. So eventually he came to his senses. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. In other words, this isn't living. Back in Israel, there was that beautiful home I left, and my father's still there. And his servants have plenty of food. They're not sons. They're just servants. And their bellies are full. And yet here I am, a son, but I'm dying. And I know why. I chose poorly. 
I sinned so bad. Notice he's not saying he's a victim of his circumstances or, you know, he's bipolar and that's why he did this or anything like that. You could fill in the blank with anything our society tries to do to remove us of our responsibility. He came to his senses and realizes, I have done this. I've done this to myself with my sin. I've sinned so bad. Now, perhaps at this point, the tax collectors and the sinners are relating to this. It's very safe to assume they're relating to this. I mean, they were seeking Jesus out. Chances are their hearts were not super hard at this point. They heard that Jesus was here. They came to hear a holy man. They wanted to hear the words of this one rumored to be the Messiah. Maybe they were tired of what sin was doing to them. In fact, I'm sure they were. That's why he's telling this parable. And so like the son, they're realizing how much they've lost by turning their back on God and his word. And of course, second audience, perhaps the Pharisees and scribes are thinking, serves him right. This is even better now. This is sweet justice. At least he realizes he'd done messed up before he dies. That's even better. Before he was just dumb and would have died and not known why. Now at least he gets it. And he understands that he deserves it. And look, from the vantage point of God's perfect and holy standard, they're not wrong. He has sinned. He does deserve to die. Just like all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So they're not wrong in their ultimate assessment, but they are wrong in their attitude, right? And, and, and so the thing is, the tax collectors and the sinners know they're right in their assessment. Deep down, they know they've gone too far. We all have, right? They know it. But at the same time, Jesus is saying their attitude's wrong because they're not understanding what God is willing to do for sinners who are willing to repent. And this is where the parable is going to take a huge turn. This is where Jesus gives hope to the sinner and he gives correction to the Pharisee. This is where he shows a way back. Now, thinking back to the first two parables, he focused on the shepherd and the woman, you know, seeking that which was lost. And so they're the seeker. They're looking for the one who's lost. But in this parable, he's focusing on the lost one himself. So we get both perspectives. The first two, we get God's perspective as the seeker. And then in this one, we get humanity's perspective as as the one lost. And so what does it look like from the lost one's vantage point? Well, for the person who gets saved, we know from the first two parables, God was seeking after them. But we also know that they have to turn from their sins. And they have to come to God and they have to throw themselves before His mercy. Both sides of this are required. And so this solves a dilemma for the sinner in the audience. After hearing the first two parables, they might ask, how do I know that the good shepherd's seeking me? How do I know that I'm, I'm one that he will hoist on his shoulders and walk me all the way home? How do I know that he will celebrate me? Sometimes people will say, how do I know I'm one of God's elect? I don't know. That's in, that's in God's mind, right? And Jesus gave the hint, though. He gave the hint back in the first two parables, the sinner that repents. Now he's showing us what this looks like. So let me just be really clear. If you want to know if God is seeking you, if you want to know if God is going to rescue you, there's only one way you can know. Turn from your sins and believe on Jesus Christ as Lord. Then you will know that God has sought you, rescued you, and he is celebrating your salvation. People wonder, how do I know I'm the elect? Turn from your sins and believe, and you are. It's that simple. That is how you know. There's no other way to know. You're not going to know by, hey, five birds flew south today when they should be flying north. That's an omen. No, that's not how we're going to know. Turn from your sins. Believe on Jesus. And you're one of his elect. You are one that the shepherd has been searching for. 
And so we see this with the lost son. In verses 18 and 19, he comes up with a plan for repentance. And when you look at the plan, it demonstrates genuine, true repentance. Let's look at it. Jesus says this. He puts these words in the son's mouth. He says, I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Now think about what is being said here. He's planning to address his dad. He still calls him father. Listen, no amount of sin changes that. No amount of sin makes your kid not your kid. And no amount of sin makes your father not your father, right? And so this son realizes, even though I wish you were dead and wasted one-third of your wealth, at the end of the day, you're still my dad and you're the only one I've got. And notice, he's making it clear that he first sinned against God in this. That's what's meant when he says, I've sinned against heaven. Heaven's just a, a standing in place for God here. It's a scholars call it a circumlocution. Again, one of those fancy million-dollar words to get people jobs. But the point is, he's saying, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against our people. I've sinned against our God. I wanted to escape his Torah. I wanted to escape his word. And Father, because you are faithful to God, I wanted to escape you. Because you, you, you represented him, right? You, you, you lived according to his way. And so that's why not only have I sinned, in, sinned against heaven, but I've also sinned in your sight. You can throw me out on the street. That would be justice. You owe me nothing. You owe me nothing. I have no expectation. I only ask this. If you're willing, if you're willing to give me even a little bit of mercy, let me be your slave. I am not worthy to be called your son, but it would be far more than I would ever deserve to be called your slave. Loved ones, that's what repentance looks like. It acknowledges our victims of sin. And there's always at least two. First and always, your sin is against God, right? It's against God. All sin is treason and rebellion against God. But second, your sin also hurts people on earth. It hurts those around you. And so repentance acknowledges both, that I've sinned against God and I've sinned against these, these people or this person. But repentance is more than just acknowledge, right? Repentance isn't just an idea that floats around in your head as a state of mind. No, repentance leads to motion. This son first is going to decide that he cannot stay in the distant country. He cannot stay in the place of sin. Regardless of whatever the consequence is, if he goes back, he has to turn his feet around and he has to go back to the place where God is. And God is not going to be in the place where sin is. Okay, that's just not the way it works. So he has to go back. And then when he gets there, the second thing we notice is when he comes before his father, he's not going to demand anything. He's not owed anything. He's not even asking to be restored as a son. That would be so presumptuous. He doesn't see himself worthy after this sin. He just wants to be near his father, and he figures, I could be near my dad even as a slave. That's repentance. Sometimes our sin has long-lasting consequences. The person who does not accept that hasn't actually repented. That would be like the son showing up after he wished death on his father, squandered his wealth, lived licentiously. Then he says the words, I, I'm not worthy to be a son. I'll be happy just to be a slave, right? He knows the right words, but it's not in his heart. It's only a front. He just wants to be back in the house. And once he's there for a little while, he goes back to start acting like he's a son again. And then if the father were to come and say, no, wait a second, I'm going to treat you like a servant because that's what you said, he then starts complaining, how unbearable, this is so unfair, how could you do this to me? In that case, the man 
did not repent. He's selfish and manipulative. He doesn't actually believe his sin is as bad as it is. If he did, he would realize he deserves nothing, not even the right to be a slave. Instead, he deserves death, and anything above death would be seen as grace, a gift, something to be joyfully accepted and received. The one who is forgiven much loves much. Back in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, a woman that Jesus forgave embarrassed herself by washing his dirty feet with her hair, okay? And the Pharisee gets completely like, just, I can't believe this. He's incredulous over it. And then Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who's forgiven little loves little. And so think about that when it comes to repentance. When you realize how big your sin is, the gravity of it, and you realize how big forgiveness is, then your love is going to be big. But if you think your sin's just a little thing and it's not that bad, then the idea of forgiveness doesn't, doesn't make you love that much at all. And that's how you could tell somebody has not truly repented. They just don't understand their sin. When we look at this son here, his repentance is genuine. It's for real. And so the tax collectors at this point and the sinners, they now see the way back. The Pharisees see a guy that's seeking restoration who should not receive it. So two guys seeing it differently, a way back and the other people, nope, he's going to come back and he's going to be turned down because that's what he deserves. And so both are now wondering, what will the father do? Will he rain swift justice on this guy or will he be merciful and compassionate? And if you've read your Old Testament, like the scribes and Pharisees should have, what is God's common refrain about who he is? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in grace and mercy. And yet they're forgetting that. And so verse 20 is going to tell us what the father's going to do. It says, so he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Now, this is so beautiful, the way it's described. The father every day was watching the horizon, looking as far so he could see a long way off. Every day looking for the return of his son. And when he sees him, does he simply smile and say, I knew he'd be back? No. It says he's filled with compassion. Now, it goes without saying that Jesus means for us to see the father in this parable as representing God. And so what Jesus is telling the sinners and the tax collectors and all of us is that when you decide to turn from your sin and come to God, not only does God see you a far way off because he's already been coming after you this whole time, but he also has infinite compassion for you. Think of your compassion when you have it. It's this amazing thing. God's infinite. So if he has compassion, it's infinite compassion. He swells up with infinite compassion for you as he sees you coming to him. He watches you come and has compassion. He will not cast you away. That is not what a good father does. That's certainly not what God the Father does. When he sees you coming, he is compassionate. He will have you. Now the father in the parable is filled with such compassion that he will not wait for his son to get there. He girds up his loins, and I know we don't normally talk that way anymore because the way our clothes is, but you know, they had these tunics which hung down very low. The, the, it's almost like a man dress with a belt. So anyhow, it's down to the ankles. You can't really run well. So what they would do is pull it up really high and tie it around their waist. And so now their legs are showing, and that's how they would have the freedom to run. So this old man does that, and he actually runs to his son when his son's a far way off. Now, 
You probably have heard this before because it preaches well, but it's not true. Some people say, well, this would have been inappropriate and embarrassing for an older man to do. And the reason people say that is because one commentator noticed that today, like 2021, that custom exists in the Middle East. Old men shouldn't be showing their legs. I think they're right about that. Shouldn't be showing their legs. And they shouldn't be running in public, okay? Um, that's a custom today. And so this person figures, oh, it must be thousands of years old and tries to read it back then. But ancient evidence shows that the opposite. You read the book of Genesis, Esau ran to Jacob and fell upon him and started kissing him. In the apocryphal book of Tobit, Anna did the same thing for her son. And so my point is people will repeat an old wives' tale just to make the story sound better. We don't need to do that. The story is good enough. Okay? In this case, there is nothing embarrassing about this father doing this. Instead, what he's doing is he's following the Old Testament pattern of a prodigal returning uh, to someone he sinned against, and then what it looks like for that person to come and forgive him. They run to him, they fall on the neck, and they shower them with kisses. And so what that is showing us is this father is overjoyed. He runs, he embraces his son, and he starts kissing him. And so what could the Pharisees possibly say against this? I know they're scandalized when they hear it, but what could they say? How many times has God forgiven Israel when Israel repented? Is this not the same? So one reason also for us to just think about, like why also would the father run to him when he was off in the distance? Part of it was to protect him. To protect him, can you imagine this kid coming all tattered and barefoot? He walks into the village. Everybody knows who he is. And he's asked to walk by all those people, giving him the dirty looks, hissing at him, spitting on him, throwing rotten vegetables. I guess people always keep those around for that kind of occasion. And so this guy then has to deal with all of that. But if the father runs outside the village and accepts him there and then escorts him back in, it places him under the protection of the very one he so heinously sinned against. Is that not an amazing picture of grace? It most certainly is. So the tax collectors and the sinners... And any sinner here has their answer. If you turn away from your sins and you come to God, he is filled with compassion for you. He will receive you. You will be under his protection. And sometimes it's sad because a lot of times the people of God act like the Pharisees in this story or what the villagers would have been like. But you have to remember, you're under God's protection. And if a people is his people, they'll see that and they'll be filled with his joy over your salvation and they won't be pelting those hisses and, and throwing that, uh, you know, that, that rotten, rotten cabbages and tomatoes at you. But anyhow, father receives him, but the story's not done. There's more. The son is being accepted at this point without even seeing a very word. The father seeing him walk towards him is enough to know, my boy's repented. But even after the father comes, because my point is the direction more than the words shows the repentance. But even then, when the father throws that forgiveness upon him, words are still required, right? Words are still required. The one who's forgiven is still going to repent, but with more fervency. Look at verse 21. The son begins his speech, but he doesn't get to finish it. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You know what he's going to say next, I want to be your slave, but he doesn't get to say that. But just think about this. The father embraces him like a son. That hug and kiss, he's embracing him like a son, and, and the son's like, no, i got to correct you, Dad. I'm not worthy of this. I want you to know that I don't deserve to be called your son. And then before he could spit out, I should be your slave, the father's like, Stop talking. You know, and of course, the father could say, you're right. You don't deserve to be called my son. The father knows that. The son knows the father knows that. But what does verse 22 show us? The father told his servants, quick, 
That's why I'm saying he didn't get to finish the sentence. The boy's talking, and he's like, eh, quick, you know, and tells his servants, quick, bring out the best robe. It's the best robe of the family. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The family goods are being placed on him. He is being restored to the status of son. The ring (coughs) and robe signify an enhanced status. And the sandals on the feet signify a new status. Back then, especially when you read some of the rabbinical literature, bare feet was a symbol of the status of slavery. If you had no sandals, it's because you were a slave. And that's what this kid or young man is. And that's what he was still asking to be is a sin. But the father's sandals tell a different story. He is looking at him and saying, this is no slave. This is my son. And even though the son knows he's not worthy, the father puts those sandals on him nevertheless, puts the family robe on him, puts the ring on him saying, you are my son, puts the sandals on him saying, you are no one's slave. And again, what does this all signify for people listening? If you repent of your sins and come to God through Christ Jesus, not only will the Father be filled with compassion for you and receive you, but he will adopt you as a son and make you an heir of all that is his, despite how many evil things you've done. That is what he's willing to do. And if that's not enough, he's then going to celebrate the whole thing. Look at the parable some more. The father celebrates in verse 23. He says this. He says, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Now, in a culture like that, a fattened calf was a big deal. Not everybody had one. And, and, uh, you know, I was reading one of John MacArthur's books on this, and he must have done some research into this because I don't know how else he would know this, but he said that a a five-month-old corn-fed veal calf weighs 500 pounds. I guess John's hobbies are agriculture and, you know, but anyhow, so, you know, a a corn-fed veal calf weighs some 500 pounds. It could feed hundreds of people. Remember, they didn't refrigerate their food. You kill that thing, you got to eat it, right? And back then they would use every usable part of it in just about every dish. And so consider this party that Jesus is painting this picture of. Preparing this fattened calf would take probably the rest of the day. Furthermore, it would provide enough food along with all the other feast items to where hundreds could eat well into the night. But actually, a lot of feasts back then, because of the amount of food, lasted three days. A three-day party over this guy. Okay, Everyone in the village would be invited. So think about this. In the other two parables, Jesus simply told us there's great joy and a celebration in God and among the angels over every sinner that repents. But it's hard to picture what a celebration in heaven would look like. So Jesus, knowing that, gives us this third parable to give his audience a picture of the greatest feast available to their culture. A family might have a feast like this once in a lifetime. And even then, it's a might. Not everybody would get to enjoy a feast like this. So he's saying, just picture the best thing we can do here in Israel 2,000 years ago. And that's kind of what it's like, but even better. So what he's telling us to do is imagine the greatest celebration that our culture could muster. I mean, what would be there? Professional chef quality food for days. Chef Ramsey would be working for me, you know, feeding me. The oldest and most expensive wine in the world. Entertainment from the most talented goof celebrities working for us. Tuxedos and dresses that that are like the level of the kind at the Oscars, but modest. Everyone... Everyone being dropped off and picked up by the most luxurious limousines and probably a hundred other things could just keep going with that. 
And so if you take that, like, like that's the equivalent of what we would picture of God celebrating for one sinner that comes to him. Well, that's not even close to what the celebration probably is like in heaven. It's so much grander than that every time one sinner repents. So there's no better way that Jesus could have showed that God has a heart for the lost, that he cares, that he really loves us. He celebrated beyond our imagination for each one of us. We who believe, he celebrated beyond our imagination the moment we believed. Let that sink in. If he did that for you, and if he pursued you even when you were running from him, if his love did not diminish, but he kept on pursuing until you were saved, then shouldn't you have the same thoughts and feelings about the lost? Lost family members, lost co-workers, and the lost billions who live among the unreached people groups of the world? Should we not have a heart for them as God had a heart for us and was chasing and pursuing us? I tell you, we should not be indifferent to their plight. Again, it goes back to the the opening question, like what brings God joy? He tells us the salvation of sinners. In the parable, the father puts on this huge celebration. And in verse 24, it tells us why. And, and, And the why captures the heart of God. It starts with the word because. So the father's like, put on this big celebration. Why? Verse 24, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Think about that. The son of mine was dead. He left Israel. He left the covenant. He forfeited his right to be an Israelite. So he was, he was as good as dead. He was not a son. He was the slave to a wicked person in a faraway country. Not even a son, a slave to the wicked. That signifies death, right? Spiritual death. Now, how does God, though, speak of salvation here? This son of mine was dead, okay? This son of mine, he's possessive, okay? This son of mine, God makes it clear that the redeemed are his children. This son of mine was, past tense, dead, okay? He was, but we who are redeemed, we don't stay dead, right? And we become his children. Now, before salvation, of course, we are dead. We're spiritually dead. In fact, I think a perfect parallel passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It shows you all of us were the prodigal son. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Think about that. You were dead in your sins, trespasses. You previously walked in them. You were under the rulership of Satan. Okay, think about it. The prodigal son is in a faraway land, slave to a pagan, under him, in the household of a pagan, just like all who are lost are in the household of the devil. They're all under his sway. This is how we were described before salvation. Okay, that's how we're described. But what the father does in the parable, and by extension, what God does, look what he says. He said, this son of mine was dead. But what does he say after that? He's still dead? No, and is alive again. His salvation is new life. It's eternal life. It's spiritual life. It's a new heart that desires God. And again, we go back to Ephesians. A few verses later, Paul says the exact same thing. After he said we were dead and we were in the household of Satan and we walked and lived foolishly like the dead, here's what he says. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. I mean, I'm going to leave that up there for a second. Who's the one that makes us alive in this verse? 
God, right? You didn't make yourself alive. It wasn't uh, my free will and my will to live and I'm just smarter than those who didn't repent. No, God makes you alive. And why? Well, because I'm a swell person. No, because of his great love is what it says. Because of it, we, we're dead. We were sinners. That's what the previous verses said. There's nothing in us that merits salvation, but because of his great love, he made us alive with Christ. There's no other way to be made alive. It's only with Christ, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So he's saying we're made alive through with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. And then he ends this by saying, loved ones, he, he ends by saying this is salvation by grace. By grace you were saved. It was grace that made the younger son finally see his situation, right? It was those eyes. He finally came to his senses like, I'm a sinner. I'm a slave. But my father's good. He's always been good. I'm going to return to my father. Now, for the son to even think that, God had already started to give him that new life and given them those eyes to see. And so then he repents and believes and his direction changes and he goes back and then the father sees him and the father celebrates that is how salvation works. And so in the parable, Jesus makes it clear then, this is all tied to the previous two parables because he ends this part by saying he was lost and is found. That's what he said about the sheep. That's what he said about the coin. And so the point is we were all once lost, but by God's unstoppable love, many of us have been found. And it is my prayer that we think about the lost like the good shepherd Jesus does because he shows us the heart of God for the lost. I think what happens is a lot of us after salvation and after we grow in the word and we start to get sanctified and we start to hate sin a lot, we become like the Pharisees. We become like the older brother. And that's why there's the rest of this parable. The rest of the parable is going to talk to him and by extension, it's going to talk to any one of us that has grown legalistic and cold or even lazy when it comes to the salvation of those who are lost. And so we'll see that next week. Okay, that, that will be talked about next time. But for now, again, the text is speaking to the younger son. So if you were here listening as an unbeliever, that means he's speaking to you through this text. Yes, you're lost. Like the younger son, your sin is egregious against God the Father. It's bad. It's worse than you even think it is. And just like this son used the father's stuff, his estate to live in sin, You've used the Father's oxygen that He owns that's in your lungs. You've used it to breathe out evil words. You've used the wealth and the food and all that stuff that the Father's earth can produce to glorify yourself and feed your own desires. You've used the eyes that He's given you as a gift to be able to see. You've used it to look on forbidden things and to crave after them and lust after them. And of course, there's other clear gifts God has given us, like a particular gift only to be used in marriage, but how many have used it and distorted it in a way that God has, has not ordained, in a way that defies Him? God's given you a voice to sing, and He's given you ears for songs. And rather than use our voice and our ear to create songs and to listen to songs that glorify Him, how much of it has been spent on songs about our sinful and selfish desires and our lusts and our fornications? I don't care if you're talking about hip-hop or country. The same themes are there. Okay, the, the gifts that God has given us, His real estate has been used to glorify ourself and our sins rather than Him. And even time belongs to Him, not to you. He has given us hours, days, months, and years to serve Him. 
but have you used all of it so far only to live for yourself and the things that matter to you? Do you see how you're the son in this parable? As he's squandering the father's estate, we're all, we all in our sin, we're doing the same thing, squandering the good gifts that the father owns that he gave to us. We squandered them and we're not using them to glorify him. And listen, if you keep doing so and you never turn from this and you never come to him and throw yourself on his mercy, then you will be destroyed by his justice. Our God is a consuming fire. But that same God who's holy and just will come running to you, running to you, right? He will come to you if you turn from your sins and you come before him for forgiveness and salvation. He will not turn you away. Even though you forfeited his, even though you forfeited your right to be his child with your sin, even though you forfeited your status to rule this world as an image bearer of God, he will still run to you and he will put the robe on you. He will put the ring on you to signify that your status has been restored. He will do that to say you are a child again. You are royalty again because you are now a child of the greatest king and you are a sibling to the king of kings, the Messiah. God will then put sandals on your feet, signifying that you are a slave to sin and death no more, no longer. And then, after all that, God will put on a celebration that makes any party on earth seem lame and underwhelming. So please, turn to God and be saved. Now, I'll tell you how in a minute, but I have one exhortation for the believer. If you're a believer, listen, if you're a true disciple of God and a true follower of the God-man Jesus then please imitate his heart for the lost. If it helps, share this sermon with them or study this parable again and again and again so that you could show them with it. You could open up the Bible and show them how they're the lost son and how God still holds up the offer of salvation for them. He's still willing to run to them and lavish his love upon them. Tell them with urgency. Tell them again and again and as many times as it takes so that they won't be a prodigal forever. And then at the same time, we got missionaries who are putting their skin on the line to go tell people in the unreached furthest parts of the earth the same thing. They need help. They need prayers. They need support. Okay, so let's, let's throw our whole weight behind them and help them with that. So let's make sure we're telling the lost we know about Jesus and God's love. But let's make sure we're also supporting global missions so that every nation could hear. There's 150,000 people that are going to die today, and the majority of them have never even heard of the name of Jesus. It's up to us to get that name, the name of Jesus, and this good news out to them. So again, believers, may that be what we labor most for, our greatest labor, the object of of our greatest effort. And then going back to the unbeliever, let me just tell you again, God is summoning you to come to him in salvation. He will have you. I can't think of any other passage that will convince you that he will have you and he loves you and he will forgive you than what we just read. And the way that he went about to do it It's just amazing that that God would become flesh, that he would become a man, the second person of the Trinity, and he would obey the Bible perfectly all the way through when we've never obeyed it all the way through. We have failed and failed and failed, but he didn't, right? And then we've succeeded only at one thing, sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. That's the one thing Jesus never did. But what God does is if you come to him and believe on him, he'll take all of your sins and give Jesus the credit of your failures, and then he dies on the cross, So you don't have to pay for it because he paid for it for you. And then he gives you the credit of Jesus's righteousness. 
and the reward of that, which is eternal life. It's all through the work of Christ. He died and he rose on the third day. He's alive at the right hand of the Father. He is the good shepherd and he did this for sinners. So if you turn from your sin and you come to Christ and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you'll be saved. All the sins will be forgiven. All the sins will be forgiven. You'll have Jesus' righteousness credited to your account and you will have eternal life. You will be a son which just means you'll be an heir of, of God's, everything that belongs to God, and you'll be set free from sin. So don't walk away still in your sin. Don't remain this lost son for one second longer. Now, is there a magic prayer you have to say? No, we're about to pray, you know, and then the, the worship team is going to come up and lead us in another song. You could go before God right now and say, the Lord, I'm, I'm tired of being this prodigal. I'm coming back to you. I'm coming to you. And I'm turning away from my sin, and I believe on you, Jesus, and you are Lord, and I believe you died for my sins, I believe you rose on the third day, and my life is yours. You do that. If you give your heart to him right now as, as we're praying, then you'll be saved. And then what I would ask you to do is after service is over, you could come up and talk to me or any of the leaders here, and we'll walk you through the next steps, because there is more that comes after this, right? Now that you're a citizen of his kingdom, right? And so, again, turn to him, don't walk away still in your sins. We're going to pray, and then after that, I have a couple words about communion, and then uh, the worship team will lead us in, uh, in song. Lord God, we just thank you for your word.